the trial lawyers really, really enjoyed cross-examining witnesses. And I felt badly for every one of the (laughs) even if they were lying, even if they clearly deserved that cross-examination, even if it was beneficial for our client. As another human being, I could not stomach making another human being feel that badly. And meanwhile, I'm looking at the travelers going, yeah, I really got that person. It was great. That was their jazz. And for me, it just made me feel kind of sick. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I am your host, Megan Henry, and today I'm joined by MC Sungaila. And MC is, she's a practicing attorney. She's a podcast host. She has, I mean, she, she has a, a publishing company. It, a, amazing. Like She has amazing things going on. And, you know, her and I got talking uh, a few months ago and just were swapping you know, stories about podcasts and our, our processes and what she's doing with her podcast and what I'm doing here. Um, and I said, you know, I, I just need to have you come on and talk about it. So here she is. So let's bring her in. Well, good morning to you and good afternoon to me, MC. Thank you for joining me today on the Defense of Arrest. How are you? I'm well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you on because not only are you a fellow practicing attorney, but you're also a podcaster. And when we got on the phone, I guess it was a few months ago. I feel like we talked for like an hour just about our podcasts and like our, you know, how we approach them and our processes. And, you know, it's just nice to kind of talk shop sometimes with other people who are doing similar things than I am. Yeah, it is really nice. I think that's one of the really great benefits of podcasting as well, which is the community that is created by it, both both by the guests who come on and the community that comes from that. And then also uh, the podcaster community of all mm-hmm. of us supporting each other and, you know, answering questions and things like that. So it's really an unexpected blessing, I think, from, from doing it because it's, it's a lot of work to do. I know, I know you have really, you know, kicked it up to a great level. So it's a lot of work to do it right. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it's also really interesting because when you talk to every, everyone's um, content is so different and everyone approaches like you know, the themes of their podcast different, but we all have very similar things to talk about because despite, you know, having a different topic areas, like the, some of the processes are very much the same. And so it's kind of nice to like, you know, bounce ideas off of other people and pick their brain about how they do it versus how you do it. And even though like, you know, you know, your, your podcast is about, you know, appellate practice and it's totally different from, from mine, you know, there's, there's definitely, it's the, the whole production aspect I think like many things in life, if I had known exactly all the different components that went into doing this or other things, I might have said no <laughs> in the beginning, but it's good not to know. So you just go ahead and, you know, hopefully produce something you know positive for the world. And, um, you know, I agree with you. One of the things about podcasts that's really interesting is that they're highly personal and individual to the host, the creator. You know, and, and then the participant in each episode. It's really uniquely calibrated in that way. I think even more so than it's different from you know writing a book or something like that. There's yeah. still some overarching theme, but there's more, these are truly episodes and they can be different, a little bit different yeah. with the person. And then your theme and your approach to the podcast can evolve. Um, I think you have to be comfortable with 
you know, just going for it to begin with, not knowing everything and just starting and then adjusting as you go. Yes. Yes. And it, it's a definite learning process too. <laughs> and things have to always change. Um, yep. But before we dive into to that, because I want to talk more, a little bit about you too, because, you know, I get a lot of attorneys. I talk to a lot of attorneys on the show. I talk to a lot of people in claims and everyone has you know different stories of how they got to, to where they are. Um, and I, I find it as a, a real theme in, in claims. Uh, people in claims a lot talk about like, I didn't, plan to end up in claims. I just, you know, ended up there. That common theme I have when I talk to attorneys is, well, I was, you know, a ex major and I didn't know what else to do. So I went to law school because I figured I could find a job that way. <laughs> so I'm curious to hear what your story is and your path is how, how you ended up, you know, in the legal career and, you know, how you approached going to law school. Yeah, like how intentional was that? Yeah. Well, I think there's sort of two phases to the choice um, that I made. And the first phase was very young, only when I was like eight or nine. And I initially had the idea that I was going to be a writer, specifically a poet. And after I had that idea, I had the next thing that came to mind was a picture of me starving in a garret. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's not good. You know, you, you better do something that, you know, can keep a roof over your head. This is, is a bad idea. Because I'd actually submitted poems to literary magazines and all this stuff. And I, I actually got, you know, pretty far for that effort. But even when you're published, you know, the poem, they're not paying you a lot for that poem. And it takes a lot to get to that point. So I thought, yeah, plan B, you need another plan. You can do this if you want, but you need something to put a roof over your head. Because that's why I was always raised that way. You're not going to rely on somebody else. You're going to, you know, plan on producing your own income and taking care of yourself. And so I actually thought about it for some time. You know, all the adults who ask you when you're little, and they just, they're just asking you for conversation. Like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I would seriously answer that I... I was considering, I hadn't yet made the decision, but I would inform them when I had made the decision. <laughs> They're like, kid, we were just making conversations. But uh, eventually I came up with lawyer. I wanted to be a lawyer. I have a, no idea where it came from, came out of nowhere, but I didn't think about the writing and the lawyering fitting together, but that's what I decided. I didn't know a lawyer. No one in my family, at least who was alive, had been a lawyer. So it was weird, but that's what I came up with. And then later on, only after I'd been through law school and after I'd had an appellate clerkship and been in practice for several years in litigation was when I realized that I really was best suited, like my highest and best use was as an appellate lawyer. Um, and decide, and saw that there was actually a practice, you know, that you could do that in. And it came out of a really challenging time, kind of a scary time. I was relatively new as an associate, a fourth year associate. I've had two federal um, judicial clerkships, but then I've been in, in practice for mm, two and a half years in between those. And I was in a trial. This is like amazing, right? You're like four or five years out and you're in a trial at a big law firm. It almost never happens. So I'm in trial with all these wonderful trial lawyers and I'm not getting the jazz like okay we're working through 400 hours a month sure okay but I need a payoff like I'm not really seeing the payoff 
uh, this is not good. And then the thing that sealed the deal for me that said, you need to find a different way is that the trial lawyers really, really enjoyed cross-examining witnesses. Yeah. And I felt badly for every one of the <laughs> even if they were lying, even if they clearly deserved that cross-examination, even if it was beneficial for our client, as another human being, I could not stomach making another human being feel that badly. And meanwhile, I'm looking at the trial lawyers going, yeah, I really got that person, it was great. That was their jazz. And for me, it just made me feel kind of sick. And I thought, well, this is not good because this isn't just like, hey, I might not have the skills. This is like, I'm a giraffe, you know, and they're a lion, like totally different animals. And we should be doing very different things. And when you've decided like, oh, I'm going to be a litigator and you realize, no, you're not. That's not you. What the heck do you do next? You know, I didn't know that there were appellate lawyers. I did know that I liked doing jury instructions, writing the motions, talking to the judge and hearings. But I decided that probably that's not what trial lawyers are hired for. They're hired to do the trial. So if I could just go ahead for that part of the deal, I would really enjoy it. And it turned out that by choosing appellate law, that's exactly what I do. Yeah. If I'm in the trial court of working on major motions, working on strategy, either behind the scenes or actually arguing things to the trial court, and then of course writing on appeal. So it turned out that it was like the perfect fit of my original desire to be a writer, <laughs> writing for which I now get paid, writing to persuade. Um, and uh, and then, you know, this idea of like my my personality, my, you know, my makeup it was a much better fit. Well, but also that the trial experience though, probably really especially early on when you took on the appellate practice aided that because you had, then you had an understanding of how, you know, a trial works and all the pieces to put in the pie. Cause I think if you didn't have that, the appellate side gets a little bit harder because you, you need to have an understanding of how the cookies kind of crumble down the road in order to be able to build up your, your argument and really, you know, persuade the appellate court, don't you think? Well, I think it's definitely a lot of, I have a lot more empathy for what's going on with the, when I'm on the team with everyone, I have a lot more empathy and understanding of the goals that the, that the trial lawyers have, you know, which we share, which is we'd much rather win than not in the trial court. And if there's an appeal, we'd rather be the respondent or appellee. So we're thoroughly united in that plan. But, but there are also, I think, for appellate lawyers who haven't had the trial or litigation experience, it's a lot more pie in the sky theoretical. So they will say things like, oh, to preserve this, you need to do one, two, three, and four. And we're like, well, yes, in a perfect world, yes. But I understand the reasons why you might not want to do certain of those things. Maybe there are certain things that you would you might upset the judge or, you know, just different things that you want to think about as the trial lawyer, but you still want to preserve. So you make trade-offs. You say, yeah, that this is the perfect way, but just doing this, this, this will be enough. Or if you're worried about telling the judge something because they're, you know, a little short-tempered today or something, you, you can file something, but you still need to make it clear on the record that this is your position. Yeah. I think there's that empathy that comes from, I understand the melee that you're in. And, and we need to balance the trial and appellate 
venues in, in making these decisions. And so it can be a little bit cooler about like, yeah, okay, this is perfect, but you know, the world is not perfect. So let, <laughs> let's do what we can um, in the right way that kind of balances both the interest in winning a trial and then also preserving things for appeal. So, um, so I do think that makes a difference. And also not only having done the litigation, but I mean, I clerked for a federal district judge and I clerked for a federal appellate judge. So I've also seen how, you know, the sausage is viewed <laughs> and decided and how the different motions are reviewed and, and how um, the perception of trials, both as they're ongoing and afterwards. So I think all of that really kind of informs the trial process. So one thing I'm curious about, because everyone has a different process um, and how they approach writing. Um, and I'm curious since, you know, it is all of you, pretty much all you do, how, do, how, what is your process for writing an appellate brief? Because my process is probably totally different. Mine is like spit everything on the page and then fix it <laughs> later. Yeah, right. I, um, yeah, we, we have a little bit more luxury of time, usually, you know, a couple of weeks um, in drafting something, usually sometimes longer than that. But our, our first step always starts with reviewing the records. So reviewing the transcripts and everything that's happened in the trial court that's relevant to the appeal and putting that record together. So first we wanna see that because even if you sat through the trial with trial counsel, the appellate court isn't going to see that. So, you know, you want to see, okay, how does it look on the cold, hard record? Uh, and what do we have here? And sometimes you can see things, you know, themes that come through from reading the record that give you ideas for the brief too. And then I think there's an iteration back and forth between reading that record and doing legal research and just going back and forth between that for a while, figuring out what are our best issues, what are some good flavor facts to apply uh, to the brief, even if it isn't, you know, discreetly its own legal issue, and then um, and then getting down to outlining, which to me really is just laying out all the headings, the proposed headings of the brief, from the statement of facts all the way through the legal argument, and that kind of helps organize and coalesce which issues we're going to do, and then and then I just start writing you know, the internal, the guts of the brief, either the statement of facts or the legal argument, the summary is of argument or the introduction is almost always last. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, do you have, like, I mean, a as a writer, you know, sometimes you need to be in a certain, like, zone. Do you have, like, little things that you need to do so you were, like, in your writing zone so you can, like, really focus, focus in on the tasks? Yeah, so I think there's two different phases, the writing and the editing. Editing, I really like a little bit of noise in the background. So, mm -hmm. you know, going to a coffee shop with a little bit of like movement around and, and focusing and editing, that's really good. I like doing that. I actually get, you know, the hard copy printed out and, and just edit by hand um, in a coffee shop, usually, um, if it's not COVID. Um, and, uh, and then um, writing drafting i usually i often have now there's scientific evidence about this actually i actually have a certain music either it's a song or an album that i play over and over when i'm playing when i'm writing one particular brief or one particular sort of long-term project and it becomes like the theme music for that brief huh. and then 
once you play the music, it just puts you back into the phase that you need to be in to draft it. Like, oh, okay, now here I am and I'm working on this. And it just kind of helps drop me into concentrating on that particular project. Because often, of course, we're dealing with many different things, even though I would like to be that I'm constantly drafting just one brief for days on end. That usually isn't the case. So you have to get back into it. And that's that's how I do it usually. So first of all, I love that. But now I'm curious, give me an example. What like what is something you've been listening to recently during you know one of your, your projects? Oh my gosh. Uh, <laughs> like, oh crap, now I need to remember what I listened yeah, yeah. to. Um, yeah, it, it really varies. Um, I'll say the last um, the last few um, briefs, uh, some Kanye West songs actually from um, an album from um, which one is it? It's called Donda, I think, but one of his most recent one of his more recent albums. Um, and because he's so creative too, and it kind of comes through in the music, and it kind of makes you yeah you know be creative. And then also there's, um, this will be a little out, this will be a little bit out there, but there's um, a gentleman who used to be a DJ and now he has his own music that he's created from spoken word, often from podcasts actually. His name is Akira the Dawn and he has this whole kind of music called Meaning Wave. Mm-hmm. And he has sort of like meaningful, inspiring speeches or um, or podcasts. So he'll have like Jocko Willink, you know, saying like basically, you know, discipline equals freedom and David Goggins and all of this, these different kinds of people um, with different messages in the song. And then he builds the music around them. And there's something about that, like if you're having a really good, you know, having a really hard time, you know, hearing Jocko tell you to just like, you know, Mm-hmm. stay with it get with it and just you know it's gonna hurt but get through it you know that can help sometimes I, I love that <laughs> that's and I, I I think I just need to employ that idea like I, I kind of like that idea of you know like you know whatever it be like ha- have that set of music for for me would be each like file be like okay well this is you know, when yeah, it helps focus like you. Yeah, exactly. Like associating with it so that your your body and your mind just automatically goes into that. And also yeah. there's something about playing it over and over. Like I'll play the same song over and over. It'll be on like repeat. People are like, you know, does that <laughs> no, because it becomes like the coffee house background. Yeah. Yeah. And then later, do you like look back on it and be like, like I don't know, I just have this thing in my mind, like someone asks you a question about something like, oh well, that was the the blah 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 brief and you might remember associated with whatever song you may have been listening to or the you know the issues in that particular matter i don't i don't remember like i'm in the oh. most, and then once i'm done <laughs> i'm like you know it's gone i'm like kind of on to the next and some, sometimes i like like certain jazz or something like that i'll listen to that for a few different briefs at one point in time but um yeah so one thing i'm, I'm curious about um because i i've done you know bunch of appellate briefs in my in my time but usually or every time I've always been involved in the case leading up to that and in, in, in it like fully in it or like the partner when I was an associate the partner was in it and I I got pulled in to help with the brief but it I was involved in the case but it seems like your role is different like you get involved 
later. And then sometimes you might get, I imagine you get cases that may not even be at your firm and it gets to appellate level and they, they send them to you. So, you know, how is that process for you when you're not, you're not involved? Did you have like, maybe have a clearer view of it? Cause you're not entangled in the, in the web um, of the issues. Yeah. So I think, I mean, first we can get involved at any point. Sometimes I could be, you know, at a major motion stage at summary judgment or something like that prior to trial or trial. But sometimes I don't get involved until let's say even through the appellate stage, like at the petition for review stage in the state Supreme Court or, or at the certiorari stage in the US Supreme Court. And so a lot has happened before we come in at that point. So we have to be adaptable about coming in at, at any point, you know, any point in the flow of the stream of the case. And just like your quick study as a litigator, I think our job is to be an even quicker study because we have to get our arms around the case of where it's been. And then we have to get our arms around the law because our job is to fit the case into the development of the law. And so we have to understand that. And then we have to understand the industry or the overall backdrop of the particular case itself. So there's sort of three buckets that we have to learn really quickly. So, um, so I think you should have to be a really good quick study. And then yeah. the third part, which you mentioned, which is um, or you like a certain amount of objectivity. There, there is because you're not, you haven't already decided what the case is about. Like as you work through as a litigator, you come up, this is our best theme. And that, you know, here's, we're, here's what we're gonna go with and with the witnesses. And we weren't part of that. So we can have a little bit of objectivity on that and say, hmm, is there another theme? Is there something else that yeah. we could look at? Um, and then the second thing, which I think that most people don't really think about, but I've found to be true, both in the trial court and the appellate court, which is that trialers look at cases by the facts. You know, you're dealing with evidence and admissibility and how is this witness and credibility and all that kind of stuff. So your, your first instinct looking at a case is the facts. And then my first instinct is to look at the law because mm -hmm. that's what I do. Yeah. I'm not making facts, I'm just reviewing the facts that we're putting yeah. in the record. So sometimes in the trial court, I've found a really great partnership between trial lawyers and appellate lawyers because each of us will look at it from our own perspective first. And then if there's a really thorny problem, let's say some piece of evidence that you know, we'd really rather not have be admitted, but we want other evidence admitted. And we've got to think about some, why does that make sense? And it may not make sense as a factual matter or even an evidentiary code matter, but maybe on a broader legal theory, like the overarching substantive theory of the case or some, some element that's developing in the law about that, that it does make sense. And so we can't find an avenue one way, but we can another way. And the only way we can do that is like putting our heads together and having our different immediate approaches sort of merge and figure out, okay, of these, what is the best way to go? So that's kind of unexpected. And I don't think that most people think of that, but the more, um, you know, teamwork and trial consulting yeah. you do, the more, the more you can come up with that kind of, you know, aha, we have it. <laughs> and it is true uh, what you say about like, I mean, I think litigators, we we think about the, the laws, they're very much there, but we know how the facts can really, yes. juries hear facts more than they hear legal arguments. They go to sleep during the legal arguments, and especially anything complex, you know, 
is hard to, to, to explain or to, you know, express to a jury, but facts they get and the simpler they are and less convoluted and complicated, sometimes the better. Um, so, you know, I, I do agree that we kind of get caught up in, in that, but are there times though, that you, when you're reviewing the record that, you know, on your review, you're like, oh, like, they sh like, I wish this were done this way because it would have been such better support for the argument I need to make today. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, I think the really before there was an appellate specialty, shall we say, and you're an old school trial lawyer, you did both of those things. Yeah. You made sure, like, in, intuitively that you were doing what you needed to do for the trial, but that just in case you were also making your record, putting in evidence, proffering, things like that. And I see with some really great trial lawyers, especially more classically trained, who did all of the stuff, trial and appeals themselves, that every time I look in the record, I go, yep, there it is. You know, I have what I need for this. And you also were thinking about me, thank you so much. So here, here's what I need, you know, to make to make an argument, whether it's about um, prejudice or um, the other kind of evidence we should put in or or a legal argument that I would like to see so that it doesn't look like I'm making an argument for the first time on appeal. We thought about this, we pressed it all the way through, we're serious about this point, we're not just having sour grapes. All of that, yes, I have many moments of ah, you know, when I see the record. Yeah. But for those who, who weren't raised in that kind of training, it can be helpful to have a public lawyer kind of thinking about those things as they're going to try. Um, and so what, I, I mean, what I kind of hear from that too, is it, you know, it would be helpful. Like you don't always, you don't go into a trial expecting there to be appeal or even, even you don't expect appellate issues to to come up you don't plan I guess you don't plan for that you try to avoid them but it sounds like it would be very helpful almost to work side by side with some of the appellate knowledge in order to make sure that everything goes smoothly should it not I guess <laughs> yeah or even for the even for the other side because I mean, you don't know you're going through it and you're like gosh I yeah. hope you know we're, it looks like we're gonna win but we you don't know um, and then um, if you do win, you want to win in a way that's not reversible. Yes. Right. So. <laughs> um, you know, through this process, you're, you're full, full um, practicing appellate lawyer. And but then you, you, you start your, your podcast. And, you know, can you talk me through the process of how, how you got there and, and why you decided to, to do that? Like, what, what was the the. Um, instigation for that? Yeah, so I think, I think there's really actually, when I, when I really think about it, there's really sort of two instigating factors to it. One of them is more, you know, maybe a little more woo-woo. The other one is, you know, a little more practical. So, um, so I'll start with the practical, I guess, then I'll move to the woo-woo. So the practical one was that I had noticed a couple years ago that at the appellate level for judges, um, there were not as many women judges just around the country as I would have hoped to see. I mean, there were, you know, including state and federal courts, 
there were mm, 150 women on appellate courts, whether it were intermediate, state Supreme Courts, US Supreme Court, federal circuit courts. That seemed very low to me. And I wanted to kind of celebrate those who were on the, the court, uh, on the courts and uh, encourage others to apply to think about that as, as an option. I mean, there are some courts where there, there were no women at all or, or one woman for many years. So, um, so I had that idea and I, my first idea was to do a book and I had thought about um, doing these interviews in a book form. So I started work on that and I found in the process that the judges really enjoyed just having conversations and they would much prefer just having a podcast type conversation and, and be done with it instead of having to work on, you know, writing their essay and just working it, it just took more of their time. And I thought, what is something more efficient that respects their time and would actually be more interesting too? Because I think lost in translation a little bit, if you didn't get to hear their actual conversation with me, um, it just it just didn't have that same like intimacy that it does having the actual conversation. So I set that aside, and, but I had that vision, you know, a few years ago. And then with COVID and podcasts coming out and honestly courts getting really comfortable with Zoom um, and being comfortable with this kind of medium, I thought maybe this is, if they are willing to talk, maybe this would be a good medium for this. And, uh, and an opportunity to reach people who aren't members of bar associations, who may not even be in law school or know that they might want to go to law school yet. So I thought it was a broader form of public education as well for girls as well as young women. So that that was that was kind of how it moved from book to podcast. Mm -hmm. And then I just asked uh, a few judges I knew, um, kind of test it out, see if they wanted to do it, and they said yes. So you know the podcast was born. And then I thought it would only be a few episodes, like maybe fifteen episodes, something like that. But each of the guests would. Um, recommend somebody else to me at the end yeah so it just it I realized it had a life of its own and it was clearly um providing something to the guests but also you know I would get comments from people as well who enjoyed the episodes once they aired so I thought okay this is doing a service both to the guests and to to others so I'll just keep going so that's now I'm just like a shepherd <laughs> I'm just a shepherd. I'm just a conduit for something bigger, you know, and we've done some really cool things with it. I think that, I mean, we can talk about this too, but I think that podcasting is just one of many things to add to the various things we can do um, to serve the community and to just, you know, be out there outside our offices. I think they're not in competition. I think they're complementary. Bar association work, traditional panel speaking and podcasts. And then um, the woo-woo part of how, how it came together is like, I don't know if I would have made the jump from book, obviously I'm much more comfortable with writing, to podcasting, which I knew nothing about, um, if I hadn't two years before had the same kind of leap of faith where I decided to start a publishing company and publish gift books and like inspirational um, inspirational gift books, basically, um, yeah. inspired from my mom who really helped me through my career by some very encouraging notes, really pretty much every day um, in the office and, you know, when things were tough. So I kind of had the feeling that I don't know what I'm doing, 
but I feel like this would have a positive impact on even a few people and it's worth doing it. So I figured out how to do it. So I think that experience of just taking a leap into something I had no idea what I was doing helped me do it the next time to do a podcast. So tell me a little bit more about that though, because I didn't know that about, about you. So tell me about these notes. Um, and uh, like, and then you said your mom wrote you the, these notes. And so tell me more. <laughs> yeah. So every day she would send me, um, she would send in the mail when the snail mail was still quite prevalent. Um, these notes to my law office and to my clerkship and just wherever I was working and they would say mother's thoughts for the day across the stationery that she made just for this purpose. And then she would put some kind of, oh, I saw this somewhere, you know, here's a great quote, uh, and, or here's a thought, you know, just sort of encouraging, keep going, you know, even if things are difficult kind of quotes and comments. And literally it was like every day for years. And amazing. So it, was, it was really, <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. And I realized looking back that if I, you know, it's really hard. I mean, especially for women in, in firms, you know, as you're looking around and going, uh, you know, I am five or six years out. I'm still at this law firm and I am the only woman, like, um, did I not get a memo Like, what's going on? So there's, it's challenging, I think, particularly for women. So I had that in mind when I thought, you know, I think this had a lot more impact on me to just keep going each day and maybe I can have that impact on somebody else by sharing, you know, what she did for me. I'm I'm only one daughter, but maybe we can help some others. Well, I just, I, I'm just amazed by her, her managing, managing to do that at such a high frequency and so consistently. Um, Yeah, it's really Very impressive. She was working also. <laughs> so she had a pretty demanding career also. So I'm amazed by it. I don't know that I could be that, you know, consistent and positive. But like, I don't know if I, I could really um, do that the same way she did. But she, she was very committed to, to I, doing that. I think she recognized how helpful it was for me. I, I can't consistently put notes in my kids' lunch. <laughs> And Which now I'm feeling really bad about it. I'm like, your mom managed to put an envelope in the mail and to get a stamp. She had a stamp every day. Like, and I can't think of what to write on a measly note to put in a lunchbox. <laughs> so, which is really funny that you said that because from the, so I, I did one book and then everybody really liked that. So I did a second book. And then uh, the feedback I got was that people were writing some of the quotes and things down on lunchbox notes for their kids because they said well we want to do this but it's really hard and we can just do this you know we can we can give some positive notes but we'll use the book to do that and they kept saying like we wish that we had something as pretty to do for our kids um that was ours you know that made it easy for us to do a similar kind of thing for our kids for our grandkids whatever and, uh, and so that caused me to make a journal. So there's a self-guided journal as well. That's very pretty and has cool designs on some of the things, but also has guided prompts for you to do the same kind of thinking and writing for your child or grandchild as well. Oh, well, I need to get some of this. I love it. And now I'm feeling like I need to fill this, like I, I want to fill this void and start start sending my kids inspirational I'm gonna buy your I'm buying your book I'm gonna copy it like I'm I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna do what all those other people did I'm like Man. Yeah. yeah yeah 
Yeah. Um, All because your mom managed to get a letter in the mail, every, a note in the mail every single day with a stamp. Like I, if I had to mail something out myself, I, like I, I'd have to find my Christmas card stamps, you know, like I, I like that's, those are the stamps I have. And they're probably with the yeah. Christmas cards from last year. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty amazing when I think about it now, actually, but she's yes. consistent. Um, so yeah, so it's, so that's been, you know, just a really fun project. I mean, not, you know, law related at all. Um, no. So, you know, figuring out how to do that and to, to publish that cutting, I think, I think all of these things with various creative things, something that takes you out of your comfort zone, just helps you grow in a lot of different ways. Even when um, I did have, I confess to having sort of an early midlife crisis where I wondered whether I really should have been a poet, like, oh my God, you know, did you just do that because you were afraid of starving in a garret? And so I took writing classes, creative writing classes, short story writing, essay writing, all different kinds of things for a couple of years, both to discover whether is this what I really should be doing, but also just to kind of stretch my writing, not just legal writing, but thinking about the legal writing in a different way, as a different form of storytelling and applying those same techniques to the law. So I think that everything that we do helps us grow a little bit and then helps us in our business or our practice as well. Yeah. Um, so one thing I wanted to ask before I got sidetracked with the, the notes, because I that <laughs> <That's okay>. <laughs> <laughs> back to the podcast. Yeah. You know, when you first started approaching some of these judges, did you get some hesitancy about coming on? Because I imagine like some, you know, some judges might be very hesitant about being in like, this is a more public forum and they're talking about what they're thinking about cases. And, you know, so I imagine that you get a little bit of like, oh, I don't know if I should do that. Yeah, I mean, certainly some, some people and um, I think it requires two things. One is, you know, if you're really shy and you're not interested in that some appellate judges are a little more introverted and that might surprise you so it's they're not comfortable with that you know that public of a uh, of a statement and, and that's fine um the other thing is is how broadly they view um civic education and public education about the judicial system mm -hmm. some of them have a very broad view about that and like me see this as an opportunity to reach the public more generally about who they are and what they do. You know, it's not just lawyers and the fact that you, you can have a public education about, about the judicial system through this one person is a new avenue. It's, it's just a new avenue to do that. Um, and in fact, there are three state Supreme Court justice uh, justices who have their own podcast called Lady Justice. Mm -hmm. And so Arkansas Supreme Court, West Virginia Supreme Court, and the Michigan Supreme Court. And they've collaborated on this podcast, a monthly podcast that started during COVID. And they see it the same way, that this is an opportunity to educate about state Supreme Courts and what we do, and also encourage women to, to join the bench. And when I was sort of wavering about whether I should do this podcast or let somebody else do this instead of me, um, I met one of the uh, justices of an appellate judges conference. And I recognized her, you know, because I've listened to her podcast. And I said, hey, you know, do you have any tips? Because I don't know what I'm doing. And she's like, yeah, sure. I'll give you any like 
any tips you want, just procedurally, like how we do stuff, or how, I'm happy to tell you. And you absolutely should do the podcast, and I'll be one of your first guests. Wow. And that's like how, yeah. So that's how that kind of happened. And she was, she was one of one of the first episodes. That's a, well. First so, of all, I gotta check out that podcast now too. Yeah. Um. <laughs> oh, really good. They're continuing on with it. They're very committed to it because they see the the same thing as you know, this is an opportunity to, to have a lot of ed, civics education in a in a different format. And um, yeah, so that was so that was sort of like that last, last little nudge. If you were doubting it, and I was like, okay, well, if she's agreed to do it. I better do it, you know. And she yeah. she can do this, so I I certainly can. So I think that. You know, there during the pandemic, because of the use of Zoom and all of this stuff, people had to get creative. Courts had to get creative about how they were doing their their job, but also they had to be creative about outreach. And so I think that gave that. I don't think it could have happened, or there would have been openness to doing this um, if there COVID hadn't happened, and, and judges sure. were more comfortable with Zoom. But no, I give full and complete credit especially to the people, judges, lawyers, general counsel, law, law professors, legal tech founders, all the various array of people I ended up um, in, you know, inviting on the podcast, but particularly the first 15 who did this before there wasn't, there was no podcast. Like most people want to say, oh, can I see your podcast before I come on? Because I want to see what, what, what to expect and the production values and sort of what it's all about. But no, these initial people um, bravely, courageously believed that whatever I was going to do was going to be okay. And so they said, yes, we'll do it. We'll kind of jump into the, the ocean with you and see what happens. So I give them a lot of credit. There would be no podcast without people who are willing to kind of take that leap and, uh, and move forward. Yeah, I, I kind of feel the same same way, like at the beginning you know, when you'd approach, I would approach people about coming on and I just had to like first be okay with rejection um, and, or, or just silence, which is sometimes you get that too. But then I really appreciate those who, when it was very new um, and not established at, at all, then the willingness to take the time out of their busy day um, and sit down with me for an hour, an hour and a half, you know, and, you know, chat <laughs> and yeah. you know and i still appreciate any any guest who comes on and wants to sit down with me but especially at the beginning when you know we we're it, at least for me too i was still like kind of finding my way as to you know how i wanted this to look and some of them were kind of like guinea pigs you know <laughs> yeah it's kind of like a it's a particularly special leap of faith it's like um you know it's like a startup and you have these initial investors you know in your in your project and there, that level of belief in, in you and like that this could be something positive was really motivating. Um, so, you know, take me through your, your process though with, you know, planning out, you know, your guests and your episodes and stuff. How, how, do, you, how do you work through it? Um, I think mine's, it, it's fairly intuitive. It's a fairly intuitive process to me about kind of what feels like the, the next, you know, interesting place to go. Mm -hmm. um, I already started with my initial mission of appellate judges and focusing on them as, as guests, as many of those judges as will, you know, willing to be on the podcast. I always say yes. Um, 
to them. And, you know, that's a priority. But I also, as often happens with podcasts, they sort of morph and grow and you also adjust to the medium. So one of the things that's different between a book and a podcast is you have this, um, you know, idea and theme for the book and, and you've got to follow that through all the way. But here it can adjust as you listen to different guests, as you figure out, as you get feedback from listeners, as you realize that there might be other purposes that, that the podcast could fulfill. And so I moved pretty quickly from appellate judges to trial judges because I started thinking, okay, if you're wondering about different avenues of what you could pursue with your law degree or your legal training, or even on the bench, well, you'd want to know about all different kinds of judges and women in those roles to kind of to highlight them and, and showcase them. And also that women already kind of, you know, kicking butt in that area and you can join them if you like. And then I started thinking all the other ways, all the other roles that women are playing, managing partners of law firms, trial lawyers, um, uh, deal lawyers, um, general counsel, and then moving outside that to uh, entrepreneurs, to nonprofit work, whether it's legal nonprofits or, or running museums, um, writers, things like that, just, just kind of kept moving out in concentric circles. And so I, I keep thinking about that. So when I'm thinking about guests, I think about, have I had somebody who has done this kind of work in this exact way uh, before? If I haven't, then I might want to have someone in that area to expand so that you can think as a law student more broadly. I also yeah. think of it as if you're if you're wondering, even not thinking about law school, if you're much earlier in the process, then um, seeing all of these ways that you can implement the law degree may cause you to go to law school because you're thinking, oh, being going to law school means I do X and I don't want to do X. But like I found further on, yeah, there's so many ways even within law, practicing law, to be a lawyer, that if one thing isn't a good fit, there are certainly others that might be a better fit. So I also think about that too, just think about the, am I displaying the broadest perspective um, on what, you know, people are doing. Um, well, and also it's just uh, providing, you know, uh, permission that uh, to the people listening or considering going to law school or in law school, or, that it's okay to pivot and you know, you may have gone into law school like I want to be a litigator, I want to do MA, I want to do commercial real estate, whatever it may be. And then realize when you're there or your first job, I don't know if this is what I and it's okay to pivot and and utilize that what you know in a different in a different way that works better for you. I mean, you're a prime example of it, you know, like you were in litigation and you're like, you know what? I don't know if this is where I need to be. And then you found a perfect place and now you're able to use all your creativity and like, you know, kind of fill all your buckets. Um, right. And so it's good to give people, uh, you know, allowance to pivot and, you know, listen to. Yeah, exactly. And, and everybody, um, you know, everyone who's on the podcast, whatever their position is now, obviously they have many different positions prior to that. So you can see kind of the meandering stream that careers yeah. tend to be, you know, it's not, completely linear and <laughs> many people, even those on state Supreme Courts will say, I never imagined I would be here, but, but this is 
you know, this is where things led. So I followed it. So I think, yeah, permission to, to change course and to, um, to do things you haven't considered to begin with. That's definitely I, I would say, I think from like my classmates, my law school classmates, there are only a few that are doing now what they said they wanted to do at the, like the beginning of law school. My, mm -hmm. Myself, very much included. I'm totally different from where I thought I wanted to be. Um, and I think because we just, we, we don't know and you don't know until you try. And, <laughs> and then you also, it depends on the market, what jobs are available there at the time too. That could, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's a lot of practicalities to things also. Yeah. And the other thing that I find really interesting, I mean, there's certainly oral histories that are done, um, you know, in certain settings, whether they're just within certain courts. Um, it's not it's not as widespread as this. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working with judges and lawyers from all over the country. So there's um, much more fluid aspect to all of those stories that you might not otherwise have in another setting, which would be more geographically bound. Yeah. And then um, also what's interesting is I have a guest who are graduates of law schools, let's say in the late 1970s or early 1980s, as opposed to you know, through the, the 1990s um, or even 2000s. And the experiences, I mean, their individual experiences are certainly their own, but you can see from their stories, because there's a, a goal, you know, coming to be enough of them, that, that there were very common threads and that being a woman in law school in the late 1970s is radically different mm -hmm. than being in law school in the 1990s. In, in particularly in the 1980s, there were massive changes for women yeah. in law, law schools, their presence, uh, the jobs that were open to them after law school. You just think um, first how recent many of the, relatively recent many of these changes were and how many more opportunities women have now coming out of law school. And so you, it's really like very visceral. You can read about history, but you're like, no, I'm listening to these stories and these people are here, you know, still practicing or on the bench. And they are telling me that, you know, only men could apply to certain jobs and people were unafraid about writing that down in their ads. And yeah. now that, you know, no way. So I think there's a message too from people who, particularly those trailblazers who started and were the first at many things that they did, graduating in the 1970s and 80s, that many of them really excelled, became Supreme Court justices, became general counsel, became so many things. And look at the obstacles they had at the very beginning of their career. We don't have those same obstacles. So like how much more can we accomplish and um, you know, move, move the ball forward? Well, we, we don't have that early on. So it's, it's kind of, I hope, inspiring in that way as well. It's yeah. possible, the change is possible change major change has certainly happened in in some lifetimes yeah and and i do think you know that we have a ways to go but we've come a long way as well like my my experience is vastly different from you know my my first mentor's experience you know and yeah. and you know and i'm thankful for that i you know but, but i i still experience some some you know, there was times that I was like, I was the only, you know, female trial attorney in my, yes. you know, my office. And, you know, there were issues with that. And, you know, even I remember, 
think I've talked about this on this podcast before. Like when I was pregnant with my my older daughter, like how long I waited to tell anybody because I was worried about how it would impact my job. <laughs> and I don't, I think I'm hopeful that some of that has changed, but I don't think it's totally changed. Like I've heard plenty of people wait and wait and wait until like, it's clearly obvious, <laughs> right? but you're worried like, oh, I suddenly won't get the cases anymore. I suddenly, you know, I'm, you know, suddenly going to be worried. I'm not going to come back to work or, you know, all, all of the things, um, you know, and we, I think we still have some work to do there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's, that's definitely true, but I hope that by honoring and celebrating the progress that has been made that you can have a little more, you know, optimism about yeah. the, the rest of things going forward. Uh, for me, I hadn't realized how significant a change it was between, I mean, I started law school in the late 1980s and graduated in 91. And I realized that just by timing of my coming into this world that I really, have, by just, by such a hair avoided and did not experience a lot of the more, um, you know, in your face kind of situations that the women graduating in the early 1980s had even. I didn't realize like how by such a hair that I, that I didn't experience that. Now it's not to say it didn't happen later when many of us have had, but yeah. it, it wasn't at the entry stage and it certainly wasn't the first few years, which was, you know, a blessing. Um, so, and have you had, you know, fr from, since the time that you, you launched your podcast and you've, have you had any, um, listeners reach out to you and like, you know, talk about like how, how it's impacted, how it's the episodes have impacted them? Yes. Um, I have, um, it, it's really nice. I mean, it's nice to get the personal notes, but mm -hmm. it's also, um, nice to you know just come across comments like people tweeting things out or posting on LinkedIn or someone like oh I didn't even know that person and you know they're saying something good about this episode or recommending it to people um so it's it's kind of neat to get that but to me for me both the um more um deep and sort of personal impacts that that things have the more it's more valuable to me. So it's, it's nice that, you know, there's the broader public conversation that's going on about the podcast, um, which actually was just named in like the top 21 in the law podcast globally. Really? Uh, oh, amazing. So, yeah. So, and it just launched in February. So I'm very excited. Um, so I want to reach out to like all my other, you know, everybody else who's on that list and talk to them about their podcast too. But um, so it's, that's gratifying, but I think, more than that is the personal notes that I get from people, whether they're saying that it helped, you know, one particular lesson helped them um, with a difficult situation, or uh, in a couple of cases, I've had things where people have said it's, it's inspired them or connected them. They heard an episode with a particular guest, they connected with that guest who then inspired them or helped them or gave them the tools to you know, establish a nonprofit to do something that was helpful in the world. And I value those kind of notes and comments much more than the other stuff is nice, but that's yeah. that's kind of why I do this stuff is I hope that I have an impact on, on people and I believe that individuals make a difference in this world. So if you can make a 
significant difference and meaningful difference for even a few people, then you can have a role in, in helping you know make the world a better place. Yeah. So it's the same kind of feeling I have when I get nice personal notes about the my you know my mom's books and things like that, yeah. where they're really deeply touched and their family is impacted, you know, in a very positive way and a difficult time from those books. That that's you know that's what I hope to achieve. Well, you're like a you're a ripple maker. You start the ripples. And then- <laughs> I haven't thought about that. Yeah, yeah, I haven't thought about that. And then it grows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought about it, but that's true. Yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of to me. I'm like, that's why I do this. So so you know, so I reach just a few people deeply enough, and that's what it's about. Yeah. Uh, well, we're we're just about out of time, but I, I I you've listened to the podcast. You know, I ask this question a lot. Um, you know, if you knowing what you know now and where you are in your career and where you've how you've gotten gone here now, is it looking back? Is there anything that you any advice you would give to your younger self to do anything differently? Well, as far as doing anything differently, I think we can't really do that because we have to stumble and fall and kind of learn things. I think you learn things more by making a mistake or making a wrong turn, you have to do that to internalize it. So even if I told myself something, I probably would have ignored it and done the same thing. So I don't know how helpful that would be in like stopping me from, you know, making a not great decision. But I do think that as we, um, you know, get a little more mature, we have, I think, a greater sense of um, just having a confidence in yourself and what you uniquely can provide and being um, persistent. I was like, just like never giving up. Um, Not that you shouldn't change direction. It, you know, don't be like pigheaded about something like, oh, I said I was going to be this kind of lawyer and gosh darn it, I'm going to be that kind of lawyer, even if I hate it. But no, no, not that kind of thing. You got to adjust based on information you get. But if there's something that you want to do and that you think you could, you know, serve, be of great service in doing it, then, then you should just do it. And I think the biggest lesson from the podcast and the, um, you know, the books for me is, yeah, just kind of follow your intuition, follow your heart, follow what you think is going to do good in the world. Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's good you know, great advice. And I agree, like you have to stumble and fall a little bit to make progress. I mean, there's, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's like, you, you don't learn, you learn, or you learn more from mistakes than you do from, you know, yeah. successes. <laughs> yeah. And I try that too, like with my law students, with my associates, I try, I always try to like avoid them. I don't want to see them you could stumble in some way, but don't, don't do it this way. Cause this is a way I can tell you would avoid that, you know, yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't always work. Like they still do that. You know, and you just realize like, yeah, you can try to help, but maybe you're not really helping. Maybe they do have to go headlong into that and learn for themselves. Even if you, yeah. you know, strenuously recommend that they take a different path. Nope. They have to do it for themselves. Yeah. Um, and I mean, even like, and think of all the things that you've done. Uh, and, and they weren't easy and you had to have make some mistakes along the way like launching your podcast doing the publishing company like the book like every, I mean you keep doing things that are challenging yourself that you, there's going to be little failures along the way and you just have to kind of push through them and you learn you know um 
and, and you learn from them and you know how to, you know, how to navigate. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, how I got into appellate work was working on a U.S. Supreme Court brief when I was in my 20s, like my very first appellate brief that I worked on on my own. And, you know, that's when I decided I really like this because I think I have an instinct for how to do this. But, you know, do that brief might be very different now, you know, several years later. But, but just having that you know, sort of eagerness to grow and stretch yourself is, is important. Yeah. Um, well, MC, it was such a pleasure having, having you on. I think you and I could probably dig in a lot about talking about podcast stuff, but I don't want to bore all our listeners with the nitty gritty details about uh, our, our shows, but, you know, for everyone listening, can you let them know how to find your podcast and how to find your book? <laughs> and okay. so they they can get those notes to put in their kids lunches and inspirational quotes yeah. for your mom and where they can tune into your podcast yeah exactly so the podcast is the Porsche project and it it's available on really every platform but also it has its own website which also has video and um transcript summaries so porscheprojectpodcast.com mm -hmm. and uh, the books and related merchandise are on motherspotsforthedate.com and uh, and then I'm on LinkedIn as well and also my law firm you know website buckalter.com well thank you so much for sitting down and, and chatting with me and I, I I appreciate you taking the time to to talk to me and share share with all the listeners out there so thank you so much and you know for our listeners if you like what you hear as always please like and subscribe to the defense never rests um you can find us on apple Podcasts, and we also are on youtube at tdnr podcast